is the message to the founders is knowing the capital and the real capital behind whoever your partner is will tell you a lot about them than what they say. Because everyone can say, oh, we're autonomous or we're a big platform company, whatever, whatever end of the spectrum operationally. And we think long term and we're hands off. But, you know, if you got PE money behind it, you can be sure as hell that that's not going to happen. Can, by can, definition. By definition. And again, it's not, it's not to say that PE model is bad. It's just different offering. And there are a couple of us out there, not many, maybe not more than a couple handful who really have truly permanent capital and have investors investing their own money and who are thinking about 100-year visions for their money. So, Welcome to The Fort Podcast. I'm Chris Powers, and on this show, I talk to some of the most fascinating minds in business and discuss important topics in the worlds of real estate, entrepreneurship, investing, and more. To learn more, visit thefortpod.com. That's thefortpod.com. Zeal is taking the market by storm and usurping the business of legacy players due to their patented technology called Apollo. Apollo is their fully reliant connectivity protocol. Most legacy charging companies struggle with uptime because their devices either can't connect to a central network or there's a disruption of LTE, Wi-Fi, or other connectivity, and then it leaves EV drivers stranded and frustrated. With Zeal, that will never happen because we have 100% uptime and it requires zero IT infrastructure and will never need an IT upgrade. You could put Zeal in the middle of West Texas, 10 stories underground or on a surface parking lot, and it'll work all the same as long as there's power available. That is not the case of anyone else in the industry. So reach out to Zeal if you're interested in electric charging facilities at your multifamily or office property. Zeal Energy is spelled X-E-A-L. And to get a free site evaluation from them, contact Eric Roseman at Eric at zealenergy.com and mention the Fort Podcast for a free evaluation. This episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. Are you a commercial real estate investment broker or anyone out there with an off-market Class B industrial deal between 15 and $100 million? Fort Capital offers industry-leading incentives, including a bonus, the ability to co-invest, and exclusive partner trips for those that close deals with us. Join Fort Capital's deal incentive program today to be eligible for these incentives and more by going to www.fortcapitallp.com backslash connect. Paul, welcome to the show. I'm excited to talk with you today. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Okay. So you describe y'all's business as we start where Constellation ends. So I want to pick up there, but I kind of want to start with your career I want to talk about Constellation a little bit and kind of the muscles and skills that you built there with your co-founder, Daniel, that eventually led to what you're doing now at Arcadia. Yeah, sure thing. So briefly on my background leading up to Constellation, started at Citigroup in one of these rotational sales and marketing programs, ended there on the credit research desk. Um, from there, I found my way to a growth equity firm called Arsenal Growth based in Florida and Palo Alto. And we're focused on really high growth B2B enterprise software, also some, some B2C e-commerce stuff that we did. That firm managed also the Department of Defense's venture fund. We did a lot of cyber, some vertical market stuff, you know, really just open bore, series A, series B, primary capital growth investing. And those are good guys, they're still active, still friends with them. And around that time, my brother-in-law, who's a portfolio manager at Fidelity on a value strategy, introduced me to this company, Constellation Software. And he and I talked a lot then, and we still do now about all things investing and otherwise. And um, he said, you should check out this guy, Mark Leonard's letters, because he used to be in VC and kind of went the other direction. So I became a shareholder, studied all of his letters, and I had started to think that it was time for me to look for another environment there from Arsenal, just to learn from some other folks and get some different experiences. And I reached out to Mark and just asked him for some advice. He was kind enough to give me the time of day. And one thing led to another. And, and I was fortunate enough to be able to get a job working for Mark at head office. And that was a very similar path that Daniel had had working in private equity, first in equity research. And he's like the Canadian side of this. So um, equity research at one of the banks, then at a, a great private equity firm called TorQuest, and then found his way after an operating stint within a portfolio company to Mark's 
analyst role, the you know, the coat carrying role at head office, a couple versions before me. So moved my family and then two month old son up to Toronto right when the winter started, which was a, a stupid, stupid decision I learned in, in retrospect to do that to my wife, right when the sun was going away. And just had a, a wonderful time there working for Mark and then moving within into one of the six operating groups. And what you learn at Constellation, particularly if you're lucky enough to get exposure to these brilliant investors and operators like Mark and my second boss, John Bilowitz, was how to think in a very high clarity manner. So eschewing this narrative approach to investing, which is really easy to get caught up in when you're talking with gregarious founders and instead looking at base rates and taking that Tetlock approach to forecasting. You learn the science and art of vertical market software operating. You learn, at least I learned, I should say, that you can't be a great investor unless you have some operational scars and also just the importance of keeping things simple. And you know, the best ideas are viciously simple at the end of the day. They're not easy, but they're very simple. So it was a, a wonderful few years there. Daniel had more like six or seven. I had about three and a half or so. And can't say enough about that company and particularly the the leaders that we we're fortunate enough to work directly for. Okay. A few things you said there, I wanted to just dig in on for a second. You said six operating groups. Why was the company, what, what does that mean? How is the company structured? Sure. So over time, as I learned from, from Mark, the company went from having, let's say, one acquisition to 30. And about that time, I think Mark and, the, and Bernie and, and the, the head office folks, of which there aren't many and there weren't many ever, realized that they couldn't keep up with the specific details of each company in each market. And so this idea around a portfolio manager or a group manager, which then became the operating group GM or CEO of an operating group, formed. And over time, there went from you know, one to two to three, over time, six operating groups when I left, the last of which being this uh, company TSS, uh, which was a big acquisition Mark led and, and Daniel helped a lot on. And so those operating groups are formed loosely to start around specific acquisitions and verticals over time because of how much the Constellation purview has flowered in terms of end markets. Those, ver those operating groups are now focused on a number of end markets. Each has maybe a core and a heart that they're, they're most tied to in terms of legacy, but they're really going after a bunch of different groups themselves. So what you had was, had what you have now is a classic, very light head office approach, like the best companies out there, the Berkshires, the Cap Cities, you know, all the books that uh, Mr. Thorndike wrote about and the Outsiders, the Danahers of the world. And the operating groups being much more close to their end markets and therefore more reactive to what was going on within those individual geographies or markets. Why do you think the best of these companies that you mentioned carry a light corporate office? I think I know the answer, but what is the benefit of that? I think there are a few items. So there's, there's a culture of frugality at all these companies that is really important. And you see it both within the corporate structure, so having five to 10 people at a head office with tens of thousands of employees sets a signal to every other subsidiary entity within the business that if, if we, the big public company, and now this isn't Constellation, this is, you know, pick your great long-term compounder. If we can have six or eight or 10 people and we've got X billion or tens of billions of revenue, do you really need those five administrative assistants and 10 HR professionals? And so I think that's the first thing. It's a signal. Second, it speaks to the character and the values of the founders. And I think it's no coincidence that a lot of these super successful companies are founded by frugal, cost-conscious individuals. You know, I don't think it works if you're a big spender and you're a flashy, ostentatious person to pretend to be frugal. Like this is the expression of the soul of these people in their businesses. And I think one area where Constellation is very different than some of the other high-performing compounders, I'm thinking cap, Capital Cities in particular right now for, for whatever reason is, whereas Cap Cities seem to keep the capital deployment, just like Berkshire, big capital deployment decisions within the select few at head office, Constellation went the other route and tried to push that down as much as possible with the head office still, of course, helping with the 
complex or large acquisitions. And I think not making any value judgments on that, it's just very different than most of the other high-performing compounders out there. Daniel and I, as we studied all of those high-performance conglomerates at head office and now have gotten to know another one very intimately in Danaher through our investor, Mitch Rails, founder of Danaher, we've made the conscious decision to try to keep as much of that capital deployment at head office. And we can talk about the potential implications on organic growth of that later. But, you know, that's my hopefully somewhat coherent explanation of this light head office and some of the implications for things like capital deployment and company culture. I love it. I've done 267 episodes today, and I've never had anybody say something like what you said. And I want to, we'll move to Arcadia next, but you said they taught me how to think in a high clarity manner. And maybe just the question is, was that, is that just a byproduct of just being in the environment that you learned that? Was there a process you went through to think like that? Like, that was very specific what you said. Clearly, that had a huge impact. How did you learn to think that way? A couple ways. So first is, this is a less scalable, repeatable way, but when you work for somebody like a Mark Leonard or a, you know, a Mitch Rails or a Dan Murphy, whoever, pick your uh, super successful workaholic genius capital allocator, you just end up seeing a different approach to thinking that is completely due to those individuals and how they develop themselves. Now, unclear how all of them came to that outcome, but it's obvious to me that they all have high clarity of thought. So when you're around that, you start mimicking and picking up some of the approaches to thinking. Um, so that's the most generally scalable. The second is we were very deliberate about how to forecast. And we had a, uh, my first year there, we did an M&A conference and we talked all about this great book, Super Forecasting by Philip Tetlock, where he laid out the academically and empirically proven best way to forecast, which is all about as many of your listeners and you probably know, finding a relevant base rate and then adjusting based on the particulars of that insider story. So, you know, getting your Bayesian priors correct and then adjusting incrementally as opposed to starting with this unique situation, which, you know, in every company, many companies think they're unique and this is why it's different. But there was a real framework for how to think about forecasting and investing in, at least in what we were doing there and what we do at Arcadia is all about having some type of high fidelity confidence interval around likely outcomes of businesses. And so when you have a huge data set like Constellation did, luckily for the shareholders, employees, and everyone else, Mark saw the necessity of using that longitudinal data set that they had fought hard to create to help inform the future acquisitions. And so I'd say those are the two ways, you know, and taking some philosophy and religion classes and thinking through hard stuff and undergrad probably helped with my clarity of thought a little bit, but as it relates to investing, it was really those two experiences. Okay. I'm not going to throw you a total curveball here, but I'm, I'm looking at my notes and I'm looking at what we just talked about. And given that it's just you and I today on the pod, your whole family was into classical music. You were into classical music and thought this might actually be my career. And so to kind of round that out, is there anything about your family's history or classical music that you can bring forward to what you actually ended up doing, which is buying vertical SaaS software businesses and, and investing? People say that folks who are heavily involved in music have a quantitative ability and whether it's causation correlation, I don't know if there's research on that. And I was involved in much more than just classical and you know everything from jazz to pop to everything. I think that what I learned from seeing my family, my dad, obviously most up close and personal, so like we grew up, you know, I grew up in the house with my mom and dad is just like the necessary dedication it takes over a lifetime to be an expert at something. So I don't think it was necessarily just that it was classical music, but his, his last year at the Cleveland Orchestra, he was one of these, no different than a high performing athlete in a professional sports league or a high end surgeon. It's just there are very few of those people. And for sure, there's an element of inborn talent that's required, but Beyond that, it was it's hard work and like extreme dedication to practicing throughout a lifetime and never slowing down and, you know, mailing it in at work. Because in an orchestra environment, if you have a bad concert, you'll get a warning. 
if you have another one that year, they'll put you on probation. If you have one more mistake, they'll fire you. Like if you miss a big note a couple of times, you're, you're gone. So I think that's probably what I, hopefully what I soaked in and where investing is a little more forgiving, I guess, unless you make a huge, huge error. That's the only extrapolation I can think of at this time. That's awesome. All right. So back to where we started. So you and Daniel came up with a plan and you started this wonderful company, Arcadia Group, that you guys kind of describe as we start where Constellation ends. So now let's go from there. What does that actually mean? And we, want, we always want to be careful not to s- suggest that we're in some way better or anything like that compared to Constellation. And we'd also, also just to depersonalize it to Constellation, we also see ourselves in the spectrum of, of companies. So what we mean by that as a quick heuristic is from an organic growth perspective, we're looking at stuff that's at least double digit percentage organic growth up to 150. Most recent acquisition we made was close to 200% year over year organic growth for a couple of years. And you know, we happen to personally be more attracted to those types of businesses and the people they bring and the learnings that come with high growth than the low growth, but ultra high quality businesses that the, let's call them the aggregators of the world, Constellation being the best, of course, focus on. But again, it's not, not to say that we're doing the right thing and they're doing the wrong thing, but that's, that's kind of where we sit. So, you know, we don't see the Constellations or their copycat firms in competitive processes really ever. And that certainly feels nice because it'd feel pretty bad if we were going head to head with a company that we have so much respect for. But there's a different market need there for companies that are growing, let's say 30, 40, 50%, they're going to require a much higher price than let's say the aggregators are, are typically comfortable paying and that institutionally can pay and we can pay those prices. And we're also, I think, a little bit different from folks on either side of us in that we're hyper flexible on ownership. So we're happy to buy 100%. We're happy to buy 51. We're happy to buy 100 and give options. We can do structured preferred if there's a big gap in valuation. And so we hit this certain segment of the market that firms to the left and the right of us don't. On the left of us, let's say left equals slower organic growth and maybe a little bit more legacy companies. We're focused on the, the higher growth entities that don't associate with that segment of the market. And on the other end of the spectrum, say to the higher growth acquirers and investors, we're there to provide a long-term runway and path for our portfolio companies that the really high quality private equity firms just can never do because of their capital base. So that's the the Venn diagram of our ideal founder is they care about what happens to the business over a generation, 10, 20, 30 years. And on the other hand, they're growing and they demand a, a realistic you know, market price for the higher growth rates that they achieve. Is it fair to say that if it's high growth, that probably means it's earlier stage in the company? Or are you picking up some of these businesses that might've been around a long time and maybe... in came up with a new product or something changed 10 years into the business that took them from flat to growing? I think you're right in that there is for sure a positive correlation between absolute percentage growth and age of company. It's probably like a little bit of a J curve of some sort and that when you first start out, obviously you're not growing at all. But yeah, I guess on average relative to the slower growth aggregators and the PE firms that are trying to do the also the roll-up game of you know, basically uh, efficiently liquidating annuity streams on the PE side, we are probably investing in and buying slightly younger companies, yes. But some of them, including one we got last year in the fintech space, that's about 9 million of ARR. It's been around 20 years, but the last five years have been the highest growth years ever in the company history and are growing well above 20, 30% a year. And so sometimes it has to do with a company's kind of early and then the, the demand side of the market builds up around them over the course of 15 years, such that all of a sudden it's an old company in the software world, old as 15 years, but they're finally hitting their, their stride with product market fit. But, and on the other hand, we've got a couple of companies that are founded within the past five years and you know just breaking out of the two, three, four million ARR range and for sure look more like what the typical venture capital firms would be investing in. But we have the, these founders who prioritize capital efficiency, like the idea of over time having a dividend stream and don't want to play the perpetual rotating investor cap table game. And they like the idea of one partner. So it's, it's a mix of those company ages for us. 
And are most of those businesses started, the ones that you're buying, have they already taken venture capital or are most of these financed maybe more like a traditional business would be and then you're buying them? Let me think. I think, so we've got about, if I think of the eight acquisitions or investments we did last year, it's about 50-50, completely bootstrapped versus some investment. And of the four, let's say, that had investment, somewhere, you know, most of them were only maybe 500000 a million and a half bucks of venture capital. And in one case, it was all a secondary transaction that a venture capital firm down in the Australia, New Zealand area came in to provide liquidity for the founders. So they didn't even really take on primary capital per se. And the benefits of that relative to these companies having taken a lot of VC is the founders own way more of the business than they would have otherwise. And we're of the belief that within tight vertical markets, if you give somebody $50 million or a million and a half, and they're at a million of ARR, the outcome four years later will be the same. And in fact, if you give them 50 million bucks and they're sitting on this mountain of capital and there's a, every quarter pressure from the VC guys saying, when is the next round? You can actually end up with a worse business because if you have no constraints, we think creativity goes down and you end up doing all things mediocrely. Whereas the other end of the extreme with our completely bootstrap companies, every decision had a huge fitness function attached to it. And so the ones that survive are thinking about primarily what the customer needs. And lo and behold, if you think about what the customer be what the customer needs, you get this really high quality business with low attrition. So a little rambling of an answer, but there's a lot in there around, you know, taking capital in our part of the market. Yeah. No, I think that's that's great. I think my only follow-up to that would just be you know, traditionally, if you t- if if a VCs put money in, they want to see these huge multiples. And I would imagine if if they put money in and then they're selling, kind of in the first couple of years, is that usually the owner of the business going, "Look, I really don't want this to be a venture scaled business. Things have changed a little bit. Let's make this more of a high growth business, but not these crazy outcomes that venture hopes for." Like, what's their discussion with the VC like when y'all come into play? I think that illustrative conversation would sound more like we won't ever be that snowflake or that Databricks or that Atlassian. It's because our market's just not that big. So every company would love to become a billion of ARR in five years or you know however long some of these amazing companies take. But I think founders and if they're good, the investors also will realize, oops, we, you know, this is a 400 million ARR market. So maybe we can get a third of the market, right? So 12 million, it's just like, you know, you get to 100 million of ARR, are you ever gonna have a $10 billion exit? No. And then you start working backwards into the time it takes to get there. And, and I think that's an element more so than the founders say, ratcheting back their ambition. So that's an element. The other aspect of this is that founders will, I think, see what it's like to work for and work with the typical high-paced private equity or venture capital or growth equity firm. And we're really looking at companies that are, have taken, let's call it growth equity as opposed to VC. In my mind, VC is like, you got to be growing 300 to 500%, something that a red point would invest in. But that's semantics and I, I digress. So, And that can be a great place to be. But if you're growing 40% and you know the VCs are supposed to be showing their LPs, companies are growing 500% or 300%, even though you're having an amazing outcome, you're going to feel that pressure and that disappointment and the tension from the investors. And so I think there's some of that at play. And then lastly, some of these companies, they'll take some angel money and you know, angel investors will get in at a low valuation and we'll buy it for, buy a company at you know, 10 million, $20 million, $30 million, whatever enterprise value, they make it a 20X return on their money or a you know, 7X return. And even though it's not a $200 million exit, it's still a really great MOIC for those early investors. Yep. Okay, let's move into more of the nitty gritty of how y'all find deals and do deals and everything. But let's start real quick. Y'all buy vSaaS, which is vertical SaaS. What's the kindergarten explanation of what vertical SaaS means? Sure. Software companies are focused on a specific end market of customers or a small collection of related end markets. So you could think about the banking market is a end market and a software company that would sell into that we call the SaaS business. The SaaS element, you know, there's two elements of SaaS that are often conflated. There's the technical delivery medium, which would be cloud provision, single 
tenant single instance or multi-tenant single instance infrastructure. And then there's the economic model, which is annual subscription. And for some obvious reasons, people have smushed those together. But we're the SaaS that we care about is the more modern product architecture because we think there's some things that you can do from an operational perspective that are different than on-prem. And so most of our companies that are growing healthily at this day and age happen to be SaaS. And so it's a good filter for us to just make sure we're getting more modern, high-quality companies. And that's it. And the, the reason behind the vertical, which is no secret to any software-oriented or aware person now, is with vertical markets, you have higher barriers to entry. You have defined markets that are more easily measurable and therefore hopefully more rational, although that's not always the case with VC money coming in and <laughs> however many trillions of dollars of dry powder <laughs> PEs have right now, they need to spend quickly. And we also think that these verticals are much more resilient to low code and no code and the commoditization of development talent and you know AI and things like that because the real differentiator is knowing how a customer operates. So most of our founders were former operators within the markets that they're now serving. And that understanding of how people work within a business is not, it's like totally unrelated to how easy it is to write the code. And you can, you can snap your fingers and make code out of your imagination. But if you don't know how a maintenance repair overhaul shop deals with landing gear refurb then you're never going to create software that people want to um, buy. You said in vSaaS, there's things that you can do differently operationally than maybe if you were in other types of software. Can you expand on that? What are a couple of things you could do differently? So one is you have a faster feedback loop on what's working in the product vis-a-vis customer usage and customer friction points. And you can do that because if you're if, uh, relative to on-prem software, you don't see what people are really doing. You don't have a pipe into the usage data you have to actually export or pipe into that customer instance, which is not something that typically folks wanted. So if you're cloud provision and, and we or the, you know, the vendors actually managing that infrastructure for the customers, then you can see what everyone's doing, not in a big brothery way. And there's data obfuscation, obviously, that's, that's normal, but you can understand if people are getting stuck in certain areas or if usage is dropping. And then in terms of pushing fixes, it can be instantaneous. You don't have to send a update file that somebody on their end has to then push through to the customer to the instance. And so you can have this continuous improvement of the code and be pushing releases every two weeks or four weeks or six weeks as opposed to once a year. And there are also some benefits around implementation and and some support things. But the main story there is just the quicker feedback loop on the product. Okay, there's two things or there's two core values that stick out the most. One of them is called long-termism, and then we'll get into one size fits none, which I loved when I read on the website. But let's talk about long-termism for a bit. That's something that's very important to y'all, I think, differentiates. Why have you chosen long-termism? So there are, I guess, three elements. There are many, but there are three that I'll talk about. So the first is, I guess, the softer of the three. And that's that we think, back to this idea of like long-term mastery and a classical music or sports or surgical context, we think that doing things over the long term is more satisfying to us and to the best operators out there. Feedback cycles in software businesses, any business really, I guess maybe except, I don't know, consumer products or something could be faster. They're long, they're multiple years. And so if a founder has a vision for starting from a rather narrow but high impact use case within their customer base to becoming a platform, that's going to take 10, 15 years to do well. And we want to be around for that whole journey. And we think also the best operators want to be around for that as well. And so it's just a human enjoyment element. And we think it has something to do with this hard to define word quality. And you can probably make, we can definitely make more money as an investor like us and maybe as a founder, although I, I would argue against that. If you're buying and flipping these businesses, particularly in the last 10 years where every two months, the multiples are higher. But you know we're not optimizing for max money. And we don't think the best founders are optimizing for max economic outcome. They're, everyone wants to make money, obviously, but they're also maximizing for impact. That impact is 
just a job well done over the long period of time, which is the only period of time that matters. If you do well over two years, that's nothing. It's meaningless. You do well over 20, like let's say Dan or her, then you're onto something pretty unique. And we also think they want impact long-term on their customers and, and employees. And if you're a business is flipping every two or three years, you just can never have any kind of stability or trust built up in the employee base in our minds. So that's that first soft kind of like, just for us, it feels right. And it's less transactional and it's less exhausting to just be constantly selling all the businesses that you finally understand after three years, just to make a little bit more money. The second is the economic outcome can be better over the long term if you're patient. And I think Bain did this, or one of the consulting firms put together a very simple study some private equity transactions that they had seen in their advisory capacity over the course of, let's say, 15 years. And those businesses were selling every three years. And they compared that to what would have happened if the initial investor just held it. And it's several, several turns more of a multiple and invested capital because you don't have taxes, tax-free compounding, you don't have advisor fees, and you don't have business disruption and distraction. And so put aside all the feel-good stuff, which is really the most, to us, the biggest driver, really, but you can actually make more money over the long term. And you see that with, again, all the, all the long-term compounders that and I think about Dan and her all the time, obviously, just given how important Mitch is to our company as an investor and advisor. The third is, least importantly, but more tactically, there is a market for people who care about the long term. We happen to agree with that. It's not like we're just soullessly trying to find where we can hunt, but some founders just, they like this and there's a demand for it out there. And we're, we're there to fit that. Yeah, I wish there was a way to really measure. As an entrepreneur, we think about our business a lot as things are either giving your business energy or they're leaking. And you're either gaining energy from certain tasks or you're, you're burning energy. And when you said... You can take taxes and advisor fees, like we can quantify those. But when you really, if you could tangibly put a number on business disruption, distraction, I think it might be the the most damning to a company of all of them. Um, I think you're to, right. But how much so? You just, you don't quite know. But man, I think often if we had to come in and change our leadership team or if half our leadership team left or we had to invent a new product tomorrow to make some number work. You know, it's it, we call it entropy. You're either gaining entropy or you're losing entropy. And every business is always doing one or the other. It's never stagnant. I love that phrase, entropy. It's one of our one of the things our family talks about is one of our values, just like low entropy. Our seven and four year old don't understand what that means yet, but try to. Uh, I will. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. But to think about that in the business context, I think is spot on. And then one other question, when you're buying for the long term, do y'all just buy the business and put capital in once and then that's it? Or is it kind of like, look, we'll continue to place capital into the business if it requires it? How do you think about that? It's the latter. So we could buy a business and put no primary capital in because at their current growth rates and what their situation is, we know that they should be making money. Conversely, with a business that we just invested in called Avsite, the one that's growing almost 200% a year, we put primary capital in day one. And there for sure will be some businesses that after four years, we hit new growth banner opportunity and when then we'll invest primary capital. So we're really flexible. And this gets to this idea of the one size fits none in that, you know, we have to be so rigid around business quality and what we're focused on. And so we're so rigid around what we focus on in terms of quality and product category, leadership, those sorts of things that you have to be flexible, everything in every other manner. And that's also somewhere that I think we differentiate from the other folks who outside observers may associate with us, i.e. the Constellation copycats, and then some of the aggregators, the PE backed aggregators that are, you know, this proliferation now of folks who say, oh, we're a holding company and, you know, we're not going to sell your business. But if your backer is Aqualine or some other private, I don't want not, not to single them out, or you are, um, backed by a private equity firm and you say we're forever hold, that's fine. Maybe you'll never sell the asset, but the whole company is going to sell one day because <laughs> you have PE yeah. money behind you. So, <laughs> you know, but a big difference between us and that whole category is we're not rigid about how money is used. Money is just some, it's just a tool. And sometimes the businesses don't need money and they never will. And sometimes they need some 
And it's just like any other investing decision. So we don't think it makes any sense to be religious around, oh, we don't do primary capital or, you know, we have to get to 40% margins. When you start hearing firms talk about that, and I think hear about a lot of the um, Constellation copycat aggregators out there is it's because they're serving a greater master than just doing well over 20 years. It's they want to IPO or they've taken a bunch of debt and they need to pay it off or they've got a big growth investor who themselves need to flip it to show a return. And so it's like, you know, knowing this is a message to the founders is knowing the capital and the real capital behind whoever your partner is will tell you a lot about them than what they say. Because everyone can say, oh, we're autonomous or we're a big platform company, whatever, whatever end of the spectrum operationally. And we think long term and we're hands off. But, you know, if you got PE money behind it, you can be sure as hell that that's not going to happen. Can, by can, definition. By definition. And again, it's not, it's not to say that PE model is bad. It's just different offering. And there are a couple of us out there, not many, maybe not more than a couple handful who really have truly permanent capital and have investors investing their own money and who are thinking about 100-year visions for their money. So we're not the only firm out there like that, but there are way more kind of folks who push on that narrative, but who don't have the foundation to really adhere to that long-term. You've said primary capital a couple of times. I'll ask the dumbest question of the podcast. What is primary capital? Not dumb. Yep. Sorry. Primary capital being capital that goes into the bank account of the business that they spend versus secondary, you know, just buying the shares, basically. Yeah, growth capital versus not growth capital, you could say. Okay, fair enough. Who's making the decision of whether the business needs more money? Is it would it be the CEO calling you saying, Hey, we think we can put money to work and do this and, and achieve returns of this? Or is there ever a time where they're not really seeing it, but maybe y'all on your end are going, Hey, we we think if we put a little money, more money in and do X, Y, and Z, y'all could do this. Or is it usually coming from the founder to you, or is sometimes it you to the founder? It's Ideally, over time, it'll be the founders, the CEOs, because the founders aren't always the CEOs, but the CEOs right. come into us. Or the, yeah. Yeah. And so to get to that position, we'll get lucky with some who just understand this trade-off between growth, profitability, spending capital versus getting there a couple of years later. Uh, that, that's a difficult thing to ask of a CEO because they need to know software. They need to know their market. To expect that they also understand capital allocation, just out of the blue is a tall, tall drink of water for most, even the smartest of operators. So over time, our goal is to train closed loop capital allocators who are running these businesses or at least running a, overseeing some businesses, very similar to the Constellation model. So how do we get there? We think about just the trade-off between a dollar today versus $3 tomorrow. Like any investor, it's simple. And we provide, like we were provided somewhat systematically at Constellation, we're trying to be even more so deliberate about education, is we're trying to provide a framework that we fought long and hard to develop for these CEOs to then adopt and fill in in their own way, such that in some period of time, they can make a data-driven, not story-driven decision with ample empirical evidence to support, let's say, taking margins down. And it doesn't always have to be negative margins, right? It could be, because a lot of our businesses, even if they're growing 20, 30, 40%, they're making 30, 40% margins. So it could just be taking margins down from 40 to 15. Or for our businesses that are making 15% margins, we have some of those two that are growing fast. It's taking it to zero. And then obviously it can go beneath zero in terms of EBITDA too. So we, whether it's we have to send you money or you're just using more of your own revenue, completely same decision process. One thing we are doing differently than let's say at least Constellation is we, as I mentioned earlier, we want to keep the capital allocation at head office. And the implication there around growth is if we allow a CEO who's compensated on growth and margins to go buy a business and it doubles their revenue, that's a lot easier to double your revenue by buying somebody and maybe paying a little bit stupid of a price. Or even if it's a good price, it's way easier than actually building those products and growing. So what's going to happen is people are economic creatures to some extent, and they're going to follow the path of least resistance, go buy the company. And when you do that enough, you start developing a culture of your culture is devoid of organic growth instincts and bench and best practices. And that's something we're desperately trying to avoid at Arcadia that I think is just one of these other flywheel offshoots of buying organic growth. You buy organic growth, you're going to get people who know how to grow. 
you're then going to have more growth opportunities for the team within there. You're going to have extra people who have already learned how to do growth and who are going to be able to spin into another business. Now the base rates, instead of being a 2% organic or 3% organic entity, now maybe your average organic growth is 20%. Well, you start having a different level of expectation. And to put in capital deployment anywhere around there is just going to muck that all up in our mind. Yep. And to be clear, the longer you own a business, like if you were to own something for fifth in year 15, you're not expecting it to be continuing to be growing at 20, 30% a year, 15 years later. Or is there a, is there a point at which it's growing? So, you know, it's like matured that y'all are thinking, well, maybe this doesn't fit our model anymore. It fits more of maybe the constellation model or somebody else that, that, that was okay with maybe a more mature, slower growth business. Yeah. It's a great, yeah. Nothing can grow forever at even 20%. We think about growth being limited by the size of the market and the amount of opportunities there are in any given year to win new customers. So if you have a hundred decisions a year and you have a 50% win rate and each of those is $1 of ARR, then you can only grow $50 of ARR per year, put aside pricing and back to base expansion. So inevitably your percentage growth is going to decline. So what we're trying to do here is extend growth curves as long as we can. We'd rather have a long, healthy growth curve than a, than a high IRR, low duration growth curve, which typically means you're stuffing crap into companies that they don't really need. So like a little bit more of a, you know, the slow growth trees are typically a little bit more durable and strong over long periods of time. But it's just that we want our, all of our companies to forever be doing double digit. It's impossible. At some point, some of our companies are, they're just going to run out of market but we've seen other companies do it for a long time. And the key is we'd rather decay from a point of 25% average organic growth and over 30 years end up at 12 than start at six and end up at below inflation. You know, and that's just where we are. And But there are some exceptional companies that have shown the ability to grow over 20 years. And luckily that'll be some other guy on our team's problem in 20 years. <laughs> All right. I was going to ask like kind of how y'all source, but maybe a, a better question to start would just be assuming it's a vertical SaaS business that's growing. What is a quick no for y'all? A quick no would be the solution being a nice to have. A nice to have something that you can turn off pretty easily in a downturn or if there's another flavor of management within your customer. These often but not always look like point solutions. And you know, it's how do you teach young people what that is? It, it, I think it's one of these things that just takes a lot of experience and you need to let your brain run its inference engine and start to realize like by actually working in a real business, what matters and what doesn't. Another way to think about this in our mind is, you know, who creates stores and moves data across the ecosystem, across the customer base. So those are some kind of rules of thumb we think about. And if somebody's just using data, to do something that's marginal and you know it's not for us. So that's one. High attrition is another. So do you lose 10%, 8%, 12% of your customers a year? It's not for us. Also, we're careful about jurisdictions, you know, so we'd only we only invest in places we'd be willing to send our families without us for two weeks. It's kind of a rule of thumb. So that's a personal thing. Some people would say I'm happy to send my family to here and others wouldn't, but we try not to let the fact that we're from, you know, Ohio and Ontario influence us too much in a way that would be unduly biased. Does, te does Texas pass? The, <laughs> does Texas pass? It does. Test? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Texas, the Australia <laughs> of the United States, um, and vice versa. We love Texas and, and Australia. Yeah. Um, I love it. So those are those are quick passes, and then like you know, an unrealistic, just completely out to lunch CEO with founder CEOs. You kind of if they're too rational they're never going to start a business because the fail rate is so bloody high. You know, it's just, you got to be a little bit irrational and overconfident. But also when you have CEOs who are, I don't know, let's say it's at the very low end of our growth curve, it's 10% growth, 11% growth, which is already, we're kind of like, do we, should we even bother? It's got to be such a good business in other areas. And they say, yeah, I just need, you know, $2 million and I'll, I'll start tripling every year. And you know, there's nothing behind it. Even if we can convince them somehow to sell at a fair price, we know that it's going to be a headache with that CEO. 
And it's just not worth it for us because we're not, you know, we're not trying to just buy as many as we can. We're trying to buy the right ones. Just some easy fast passes. Okay. You closed on a business. Uh, we found a great one, BSAS. What's happening in that first year? And I know it's not one size fits all or one size fits none, but traditionally, are there some core tenants to what y'all are trying to accomplish in that first year? Is it truly every business is different? Every business is different, but yeah, there's some core things that we try to put through. So our process is hat tip to our managing director, Ryan Beaver, who came in and supercharged our process. He's an engineer by background, has done everything from developer to architect, CTO, VP engineer, COO. He was my COO when I was operating. So he did everything pretty much. And CEO himself, just amazing, extreme outlier operator, like top 0.1 percentile. We're super lucky to have him. So he's come in and put a developer's mindset around this concept of value creation. So we run a scrum style approach using Microsoft DevOps. Every single item that we've discovered in diligence and or that is a typical best practice for us, because there's some tried and true best practices. And then there's this huge, massive library that just depends on the company. We assign a card to, it has acceptance criteria. We run scrum standups. You know, we pull stuff into working. It's just like a development team. And that allows us to do something which we don't think really any other firms can do because you know, you're talking with software developers typically, and they like to see, they don't want to see Excel. They want to see Trello or DevOps. So that's our process. Obviously, I'm not doing it justice, but very detail-oriented with every company there. And that saves so much time. And then the things that we always want and that we need day one is we need the certain measurements that we rely on and that we want our CEOs to rely on in the business. So that's some basic things in sales and marketing. Nothing new. You know, what's your What's your funnel? We often have to help rebuild funnels so that they're weighted and sized based on data as opposed to finger in the air. So we'll get those funnels oftentimes tuned up. And then we want measurements around that. So, you know, days in stage and customer acquisition costs and gross margin months payback, all this stuff that, you know, Tom Tunga's formerly Redpoint could talk about much more eloquently than I. And then it's the same one to two or three metrics in each of the five functions of software business. So there's sales and marketing, professional services or implementation, support, whether you call it customer success or support, support customer success, whatever, customer support, R&D, which is everything from product management to development to architecture to engineering in our mind, and then general administration, general administrative. And so each of those have a couple key metrics that we've learn from our days in growth equity, private equity, constellation, and that we've developed ourselves through hopefully some value additive synthesis. And we got to get those in because you can't measure the business. You just, you're running blind and you're running off gut. And our whole thing is there's no more gut. It doesn't mean you take the spirit out of what people are doing. Product ideas, especially are often like inspired ideas, but they have to also be connected to data. And that's what we're so focused on in that first two, three months. And then our goal is to help train and teach those CEOs and their functional leads how to think like an investor about their business. And really, like I said earlier, very few have that capability. And it's it's not a critique. It's just like, hey, they've been operating. If you have a data set of N equals one or two software companies your whole life, and we have, over our combined experiences, seen 500, 600 across all the firms we've worked at. We're obviously going to have a better understanding of what works and what doesn't. And that's our relationship with them. And that's, that's what we try to get done the first few months. Everything else is depending on the company. How do you get the data and the metrics? How do you actually get those down into the company? Do you have them download a software that tracks all this stuff? Like, How does it make its way into the company? Every company is a little different. We So Ryan has a team and all of us. So it could be Ryan, Andrew, who's on his team, and maybe one of our associates, Luke, or Tanisha, Thomas, whoever worked on the investment. They will basically be the... They'll be whatever the company needs them to be. They could be hands-off coach. They could be the an analyst. Or they could be the person going into, let's say, Salesforce and building the new dashboards. So we meet each company where it is. But we don't have like one master BI package that we stuff in. It's oftentimes 
just using whatever systems they have and then ensuring that they're pulling the right data out because this data exists. It's just about corralling it and capturing it. So we try to make that as light a touch as possible for the companies. The trade-off is if you do everything for somebody, then they don't learn it and they don't own it. So, you know, there's a balance there that we have to walk. All right. I have to dig in on just, we're going to give a shout out to Ryan, who you said is the top percentile operator that you've ever met. And he's kind of a unicorn. If you just had to say, what does he do in a simple way? What does he do better than everybody that makes him such a great operator? Or what are a couple things he can do that most people just can't? So the first is he understands, he speaks the language of engineer and capital allocator and business person like very few people do. You know, I understand technology to heuristic layer, maybe a little bit better than that in some instances, but I can't code. I don't know, is is Excel code? I can do Excel code, but (laughs) I can't do real code. Ryan can, still codes. And he understands these, all of these technologies at a layer that is extreme expert. And at the same time, because he's been a COO, a CEO himself, he understands the pitfalls that come with being only an operator. Because if you let a stereotypical high-end engineer run things and they're just brilliant and that, you know, it'll, products will never be done, they'll never be good enough. So he's just got that unique mix of being commercial also being extremely effective with people, being a compassionate guy and knowing technical elements. He's also a monster. So, you know, in person, he's just a little afraid of him, which Mark also had as a superpower. (laughs) So that's the first thing. He's just like a polymath in everything software. And I think the second is he's extremely process oriented. So he's got everyone on Eisenhower boards and running our internal teams on a scrum basis as well. Two-week sprints monitoring throughput, planning poker for what we have to get done. And very few people know how to and have the interest to uh, apply that developer skill set within a more general business context. And and then lastly, he's just seen it all, right? He's just, he started Constellation, I think he was 22, back in 2000 or 2001 within one of the first acquisitions that was ever done. And, you know, he's only 43 or 44, something like that. So like his whole time was built up within probably the best, most disciplined operating context in the world. And yet he has the heart for growth and, you know, building something that matters. So I can hear it. I can just feel it on this end of the mic. That's super cool. If I was talking to one of your CEOs a year after you bought them and said, what are a few things that they did to make you think like an investor? You were an operator when they bought you, and now maybe it takes a few more years, but let's just say at the end of some point in time, you guys had said they're finally getting it. What would they tell me that you guys had done for them to make them help them think that way? Well, I wouldn't take too much credit for the CEO that gets there. So they would have done for themselves what they would have done is embraced the very simple, basic frameworks of reporting, measurement, and decision hygiene. And they would have implemented that in their business. So what's it? It's kind of uh, nebulous. So a concrete example would be like, gosh, if a, if a CEO came to us and said, you know, hey, I know we have this plan for the year that's kind of these, this team, this hires, these rough margins and growth is what we expect. But I want to go outside of that. And I want to hire two or seven, whatever, more people. And here's why. Number one, we've opened up a new growth avenue in the market. And here's the data that we see in the top of our funnel showing that it's already converting at a higher rates to the mid stage. And therefore we have high confidence that our revenue is going to beat by a massive amount, even though we haven't signed contracts. Number two, we are seeing an opportunity relative to our competitor who is slimming down in pro serve. And if we can spend a little bit of capital now to over deliver on implementations, it's going to lead to a very compelling market story for us. And number three, we have a couple people who we think may not make it to the next level, maybe one or two. And I don't want to wait, given where we are with growth, to get those people replaced. If a CEO came with that type of data and also had the implications of the budget, you know, we don't have a budget per se, we have forecasting, but implication on the forecast, then it's like, okay, well, our job is done here. Then all we're there for is to be a thought partner and a sounding board that has some critical distance from the heat and emotion of the day-to-day of a business. So that's what it would look like. And again, how they get there, it's just, it's just kind of leaning into our process, which is 
we think very similar or probably what Berkshire Hathaway does with its companies and, you know, the Danaher business system touts with its operators. You've talked about Danaher quite a bit and Mitch, and he's also one of your investors. So maybe we can get two questions out of this. The first is, what are your investors expecting from y'all as permanent capital with 100-year visions? Again, when you're measuring in three to five-year increments, it's easy to go 20 IRR over five years is what you should expect. What is somebody that thinks on a 100-year vision expecting from y'all? And how do you know if you're doing a good job or not? They want, let's say in 20 years to make it somewhat human scale, a huge multiple of invested capital as measured by the then present equity value of the business. So, you know, 30, 40 X MOIC on this initial capital, something like that. They want to see an elimination of reinvestment risk, i.e. they don't want cash back because then you got to do something with it. So they want that cash to be perpetually at work with us. Obviously, that's where a lot of that MOIC comes from is redeploying the initial capital at productive rates of return. And I think that's the simplest way to say what they want from an economic perspective. And, you know, each of them has their own personal ambition for their money. But for sure, what binds them is nobody wants it back in five years because none of these people are trying to buy the next boat, you know, or if they are, they got plenty to do that without their capital in Arcadia, whatever the case may be. So that's most simply what they want. And that's their biggest challenge is, is finding places to put capital at productive rates of return without having to recycle it all the time. Okay. And then maybe we can just go a little deeper. What is having somebody like Mitch? I don't know if he's on your board. Is he on your board? But he seems to be someone that picks up the phone when y'all call. What has, maybe it's like a broader discussion because anybody could relate to this in their industry. But if, if someone was able to have someone as accomplished as Mitch close to them, what would that do for their business? What does it do for y'all's business? So the first is in the, the kind of the lowest effort for a guy like a Mitch or a you know, Brad Bloom, Ross Jones from Berkshire Partners or Caleb and Froze or any of these, any of these great folks we have is it's a great example and a, a something to aspire to. So, you know, whenever you talk with somebody who's done something the right way over long periods of time, it's just great motivation. And we're pretty intrinsically motivated guys, but it doesn't hurt to have that example floating around in your consciousness all the time. And, um, so that, that's one and that's the simplest, but they don't even need to pick up the phone to do that. The second is is really helping keep things simple. And that's where I think Mitch is, you know, has a superpower. He's obviously extremely genius level intelligence. But like we discussed earlier on in the episode in the show, the things that move the needle the most are simple. And so if you know you're in the heat of decision about should we make this really big acquisition that could use a third or 50 or 60% of our 100% of our remaining cat, you know, anything like that. And we're obviously going to talk to some of our large investors that get their insight, because why wouldn't you, you know, to hear this, the high clarity of thought and the simplicity, the focus on quality is extremely helpful. And the least helpful would be, you know, the investors who, and we don't have any of these, but an investor who tries to get really technical and you know, well, how did the last quarter work? And have you thought about how could you move attrition by 50 basis points? And what's the tech stack? It's, it's like, is it a quality business? Do they have market leadership? And in, in those discussions, you realize, I mean, you're reminded of what really matters. And so that is extremely helpful since clarity of thought, low emotion decisions is everything. And then there's a lot more tactical stuff. So working, learning about the Danaher business system, how they've done acquisitions, how they deal with the people side of businesses, the pace at which they can make change, mistakes they've made, all that sort of stuff is you know invaluable. And uh, we're really grateful for that. Okay. I have two questions left. And I know it's early. Y'all are relatively young in your company life, so you, you, but you probably come across this before. But you buy a business, founder is all in on wanting to move forward. And then they've been operating for a couple of years with y'all. And then one day they call y'all and they're just say, I'm done. What happens then? Because you're holding this thing forever. Do you actually think about a sale at that point? Or I'm assuming a passionate founder is not just walking, giving you your two weeks notice and they're gone. But how do you think about that if somebody has, I'm sure this has come across your desk at some point where the founder just says, I don't have it anymore. So yeah, absolutely. It's, it's going to happen. 
it's happened so far with us, but not in an unexpected manner. So we had a founder CEO who said, I've got, you know, between six months and 18 months. And after about a year said, okay, it's time. The good thing about these businesses that we focus on, especially once we get our hands on them and can further increase the quality, although they require high quality people to grow, you can't, you know, these low growth businesses, you can have anybody go in there and for a few years is going to be able to get margins and extract from the customers, but that's our model. So we need good people, but there's incredible inertia with high quality businesses such that even if the CEO were to disappear off the face of the earth, you have six months before anything disastrous happens. You might even have a year. So we have, we try to keep some Zen around that and realize that if even if you lost the top three people within a company, it's not going to unfold on you the next day. But, you know, we keep really, we have a culture of extreme honesty and directness even if that means sometimes that the friendship element of work is a little bit less at periods, it doesn't matter. Honesty is over, over everything for us, as long as it's humanely delivered. And that allows you to really have a good understanding of where those CEOs and operators are. And they also have a good understanding of where they sit within, you know, us, the owner, ultimately where the owners are approval of them. So you shouldn't have too many surprises. And then lastly, if you do, hopefully you have some people in the business that are constantly being trained up so that they could step in and fill that spot. The last resort is, of course, Daniel, Ryan, myself, we could all step in and be the CEO of a business for some period since we've all done it. But as you know, we don't, that's not what we're designed to do. And so talent's everything, but there's some real momentum, I should say, with these businesses that gives you some forgiveness. You think you're a good, do you think the reason why y'all are special and why y'all can do what you do is because you guys have been CEOs and operators before? If, if we are special, I should say, then I think somebody else would say it's a mix of a few attributes. First is we've been very lucky to have a wide variety of high quality investing exposures, which is in the early part of our career, just dumb luck and good fortune. And then as we progress more to do with our own hard work and success. So that's the first. We've been trained exceptionally well, I think. And we've been trained by exceptional people. Number two, Two, we listen to our, we listen to Mark and in my case, John Billowitz and Daniel's case, Dexter Salna and listen to them loud and clear and said, if you don't operate ever, you just, you just always going to be at a bean counter and you'll never really understand what to do and how to do it. And so we don't think we're the best operators in the world, but we've had enough of the shrink wrap removed and enough scar tissue built up to at least have empathy, if nothing else. So that's unique. And then I'm sure there's some personal attributes, you know, and we have a good partnership between me and Daniel. And I think we're also extremely like pretty self-flagellating guys. And that's, I think, super required to do well over the long term. So as soon as you think you smell good, it's, it's over, I think. And I, we just have maybe it's deep personality flaws. We're our worst critics and that's going to stay forever. So I, that can be painful at times, but it's, um, it's really helpful. I think your level of humility, I can just oozes through the episode. That's how I would characterize you in the most positive way possible. This last question's for me. And I meant to actually ask it at the beginning, because when I was doing research, I was like, I've never seen this before, but you've actually said the word a couple of times, but somewhere I came across religious about using Canson and Scrum to manage Arcadia in our lives. What Kanban, is it? Kanban. Kanban. So Kanban and Scrum are two types of work process methodologies. So Kanban is like the easiest way to think about Kanban is it's it's what Trello is. You have cards, you move it from to do to doing to done. And there's a whole system around what that looks like. In other words, it's just like whatever cards are up there, you just take them. Some have more points, some don't, but all your your goal is to just get stuff from in process to done. You don't want to get a lot of stuff stuck in, in process. You get more points for completing something. Scrum is an approach type of agile methodology that's about or sprint oriented. So you have these narratives and, you know, it could be a two week sprint, four week sprint where you're going to get certain things done. There's, a, there's a whole, like, it's probably way overboard. I mean, not what I'm saying, but the religion of scrum has gotten like way out of hand. There's like all these rituals and it's like religious terms, rituals and the scrum master and all this stuff. But basically it's about being agile and having short iterative feedback loops. Then there's confusingly, there's Scrum Band, which combines Scrum, <laughs> scrum and Kanban. <laughs> so it's like, okay, 
you know, just somebody's making it up. But we're we're religious about that because we expect our companies to operate that way in the development, which is the heart of the software business, is the development function. And it works really well. And there's a lot of smart people inside development divisions within companies. So it would be foolish not to leverage it. It also helps just keep us super organized. We never wake up and think, what am I going to do today? Or, you know, what's the most important? We know exactly what we have to do, what's urgent, what's important, you know, what's the stuff you just throw away. So it's just a way to live life. And that's, that's it. Paul, this has been awesome. I really appreciate your time today. I know you are in uh, Park City getting ready to go ski, which is a great second half of the day. Got to tell your listeners, I didn't realize I'd be on camera. So you can see my bed in the background of one of my college roommates is <laughs> over in the corner doing work. Poor guy. So I have to buy him lunch and beers all day. Uh, and um, But uh, hopefully it's not too offensive. And thank you so much. Really appreciate it, Chris. It's been, been amazing. Uh, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. 